This is the Speech Uncensored Podcast, your unflinching look into the vast scope of practice of medical speech and language pathologists, or as I like to call us, neurocommunication pathologists who are also responsible for dysphagia. Anyway, I'm Leanne Porter. I love learning, I love our field, and I love talking about it. Today's guest is thoughtful, eloquent, and has industrial laminators in her home. She's everything I hope to be when I grow up. It is with absolute delight that I introduce you to Megan Berg, owner and designer of Therapy Insights, formerly known as SLP Insights. Our topic today is focused on health literacy, which makes my little public health degree heart ever so happy. Without further ado, let's meet Megan and get this show on the road. Welcome, Megan Burke. How are you doing? I am good, Leanne. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm really excited about our talk today because um, we're going deep into some like, I don't know, philosophical <laughs> parts of our field, you know, getting very theoretical and talking about really, really big picture stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I love podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I love your podcast. And I was listening to Joe Rogan interview Bernie Sanders the other day. Oh, Joe Rogan made this comment about podcasts and how they're a long form method of communication and how like now we get so many little tidbits on social media or news bites, but we don't get to just sit down and have a conversation, which Mm -hmm. is what's so great about podcasts. So Thank you for creating this space and thanks for having me on. It's a delight. I'm well, thank you for your kind words. You're just like such an encourager. It's like <laughs> one of my favorite things about you. You're never gonna get rid of me because I'm gonna be like, so Megan, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Say something nice. <laughs> well, Megan, you have a podcast now too, don't you? I do. I have three episodes on it, and it's called the Therapy Insights Podcast, and it is meant to fill the gap. Like when I was in grad school, I did not have access to a counseling course. Mm -hmm. So the podcast is all about interviewing people who are counselors or who have a bigger perspective on the healthcare system and filling that knowledge gap need. Oh, that is so good. That is so important because we have, I mean, we see people with progressive disease patterns. I mean, you know, they know, we know, everyone knows it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. Those are some hard conversations to have. Yes. And then even outside of that, when someone comes to see us, you know, for adults anyway, they've had some kind of injury, you know, a stroke or a traumatic brain injury that's fundamentally shifted how they interact and their whole life and their role in life. And that's a hard conversation to have. And they need a lot of assistance with coping. So Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So um, before we get way more into it, because I will just keep asking question after question. (laughs) Um, Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and your background? Yeah. So I am a speech pathologist in Missoula, Montana, which is Western Montana, close to Idaho, close to Washington. And I came a little bit late to the field of speech pathology. I had a different career before I went back to grad school. So before I became an SLP, I worked with scientists 
around the world to synthesize and communicate their research goals and objectives and progress and outcomes. And that was a really incredible experience for me because I got to travel all over the world and work with people from lots of different countries and create and develop materials in lots of different languages, all trying to target some very esoteric scientific concepts. And so I had moved around quite a bit and had ended up in Boulder, Colorado, and I was working for a science research group there. And I got to the point where I felt like that was kind of the end of that journey, and I was looking for a new challenge. And I perused the University of Colorado grad school options on their website, (laughs) and I came across speech pathology And I had never heard of it. I didn't know anyone that was a speech pathologist, but I loved the idea of it. And I think I loved it because it combined my background of science, but also added in this human connection element that I think I was uh, missing and what was wanting. So I started taking classes while I was working just to see if I liked it and ended up getting into the program. And my first job was working with kids. And that's partly because I did one of my internships at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. And I loved that experience. It was a totally different challenge for me, um, but definitely fell in love with those kids and the reservation and that experience. Um, But then I ended up moving to Montana and there was a job opportunity open to work with adults. And that's kind of where I'd always seen myself. So I took that job. And Missoula is kind of unique, and I think it's like a lot of rural places in the United States where there's not a ton of access to healthcare. So if somebody does get into a situation where they need acute medical care, and then they are moving on from that and going into rehab, um, the family then has to make a choice if they're going to relocate for a while to Salt Lake or Denver or Seattle or if they're going to choose to do rehabilitation in one of the skilled nursing facilities that's local. So I think in that sense, like it's been a really great job for me because I get to work in long-term care, but then we also have a pretty big post-acute patient population. Um, So that's where I get to spend the majority of my time. And then when I started working with adults, one of my biggest challenges was um, finding materials and resources for them that were not designed for kids. Preach, sister. (laughs) (laughs) And I think there's been like this explosion of uh, material development in the last five years, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. and I'm glad that I've gotten to be a part of that. So I started developing handouts. And again, this kind of goes back to my experience as a scientific communicator, educator, and just um, really bringing visual elements to the patient education experience. So just uh, like describing what dysphagia is and providing a very clear visual for people or breaking down the difference between aphasia and apraxia of speech for families. And initially um, I started the company and it was called SLP Insights and uh, gave away everything for free and then realized the cost of the development and web hosting and web development of that. So then I started charging and that led to the development of Therapy Fix, which is a monthly subscription 
service. So we have four different flavors of therapy fix. Um, there's one for pediatric SLPs, and that one is really designed for SLPs working with kids in clinical settings. So it has a lot of materials for feeding and swallowing as well, because that was a gap that people had identified as needing more resources. And then we have an OT version and a PT version and a medical adult rehab SLP version. And that one is broken down into three categories, um, speech, language, and voice, and dysphagia, and cognitive linguistics. So within those three categories, every month we design and print a handout for each category, an intervention, and a resource. And then we also do article summaries of recent articles that have been published within each of those categories. And we have a sticker and a quote, and we have monthly calendars for people with low vision and weekly calendars for people with memory impairments. So the whole idea is with Therapy Fix, people get a fresh batch of materials in the mail each month, and then it comes with a digital download code. So then they can download all the PDFs and then keep printing them as needed for their clinical practice. And so then the name changed from SLP Insights to Therapy Insights. And part of that was because we were starting to create materials for OTs and PTs based on request. But I think the name change also reflects the direction that we're headed in and the values that we have in the sense that I think that, and like maybe somebody can explain that there's like a legitimate reason for this, but I've never understood how like in our learning institutions, we have SLP, OT, and PT are frequently in different colleges and we don't take classes together and there's not a lot of collaboration within that learning environment. And then we're thrown into the real world together and we've kind of missed the opportunity to learn how to effectively collaborate. And so we're trying to learn it in the field. And so my hope is that Therapy Insights becomes more of a platform for that interdisciplinary collaboration and discussion. And I think that like the healthcare world is changing so drastically and so fast. And we have, you know, these major shifts coming up next week with the patient-driven payment model and Medicare changing everything. And then (laughs) other insurance companies are going to follow from that. And I think that it's an opportunity for all of us to stand together and be a unified voice for strong ethics and morals and really creating an environment where we value patient care and we also have a place to work that is not expecting unrealistic levels of productivity. So, yeah. Yes. All the yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, Megan, I just wanted to point out just for kicks and giggles um, that we have a really fun feature in common that we only (laughs) discovered about ourselves. This is so random. Like. How many other Americans like studied abroad and you also got a degree from the University of Otago, right? Right. So how did you end up at Otago? So um, the University of Otago is in Dunedin, New Zealand, and I went to the campus that's up in Wellington mm-hmm. and I went to their medical campus because I got a amazing opportunity through Rotary International as um, one of their ambassadorial scholars. Wow. To- study at the master's level for a year. 
where I earned my postgraduate diploma in public health. Wow, that's amazing. I and to do it in a place like New Zealand where, I mean, sometimes I feel like it's because of the fact that they have 4 million people and it's easier to manage, but they really have this healthcare system. They just have a totally different and unique perspective on it. So that must have been fascinating. Oh, yeah. As um, part of the requirements for the scholarship, um, I needed to travel around and be a speaker at other Rotary clubs, which was absolutely a pleasure. Wow. Like there's nothing more fun than getting up in front, in front of a group of people in my mind and talking to them <laughs> because the topic was about me. So. <laughs> it was a blast. Um, but I would share as part of my presentation, I would share some of the things that I learned about New Zealand just you know, by moving there and living there for the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were just some random fun facts just meant to be entertaining. Um, but one of them was their healthcare system. And I remember every now and then a Rotarian would come up to me afterwards and be, you know, would express their disgruntlement with their system. And it's huh. like, it's just a reminder that there is no way to please everybody. Like yeah. somebody will find something that they don't like, like about it. And um, yeah need to share that. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. There is no universal one size fits all solution for sure. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Fun fact. We both (laughs) go to the University of Otago. So do they even have mascots? Because I was about to say like, go insert mascot, but I don't know. Oh my gosh. I feel like I should know this. I know, right? I don't. Pop quiz and we (laughs) But that was like, what, 15 years ago for me. Oh, my gosh. Well, I was there in 2007. Me too. What? Whoa. Maybe we totally crossed paths and didn't even know it. That's wild. That's hilarious. We both (laughs) were at the same time. All right. We have got to get this show back on track. Okay. For reallys. Okay. All right. Thank you for that awesome introduction about Therapy Insights and how it's morphed, how it's grown, what it's doing right now, the purpose behind it, Um, because that's a really good segue into today's topic, um, which is primarily on health literacy. So Megan, what when we say health literacy, what does that mean to you? Oh, so my understanding in my concept of health literacy has definitely morphed a lot and transformed. And I think that goes along with just our cultural understanding of it. And there's an article that you're going to reference in the show notes, and that's kind of going to be the structure for how we talk about health literacy today. And we're going to break it down into these three categories and talk about each of them. And those categories are functional interactive, and critical. And I think that as the healthcare system evolves, and as we as clinicians and as patients evolve, I think we're working more towards that critical level of health literacy. But if we start at just the functional level, this is just the very basic understanding of our own health. And it's the kind of understanding that lets us make decisions about our health. So For example, I was in my kitchen last week and I was cutting onions 
And I got distracted because I always get distracted. And I set the knife down on the edge of the counter. And of course, it started falling. And of course, instead of letting it fall, I reached out and grabbed it and managed to slice my thumb open. Oh, right. (laughs) What? (laughs) So, but like my knowledge of wounds and open wounds and knife cuts led me to be able to put pressure on it and then go in and get stitches, right? Like that's the basic level of functional health literacy is just knowing what to do with our own bodies when we know the information and the options in front of us. Mm-hmm. And I I loved the conversation that you had with Will. Was it with Will Farnham about replacing yeah. a language of fear? Mm-hmm. And you guys were talking specifically about dysphagia, but I think this could apply to anything when we're talking about this functional health literacy is our role is not to provide information that's going to sway somebody one way or another, but just to give them the information so they can make the best decision for themselves. That is my jam. And that's why I went to the University of Otago and studied public health, because I felt like if you empowered people with education, with knowledge, they could make informed decisions for their own health care. They don't need to be told what to do or how to do it. It's like if you smoke, the chances of getting lung cancer are exponentially higher. If that's something you're okay with, smoke away. Yeah. It's like if someone's like, oh, well, heck no, I don't want to get lung cancer. I don't even want a chance of that because of smoking. I choose not to smoke. Well, then there you are. You're empowered to make health related decisions based on information that's been provided to you. Absolutely. And another example that I like is like we have this therapy task that walks people through counting carbohydrates to manage diabetes. And the task starts off with just learning how to read a nutrition label, learning what carbohydrates are, and then going through a series of mathematical equations that are based on their own body type and their own preferences. And they ultimately reach a point where they are able to know how many carbohydrates they can consume per day that will not have a drastic effect on their blood sugar levels. And one thing that's interesting about Like when I do this with people, it's often the first time that they've gotten to sit down and look at this information and learn this information. And I think part of that is because quite often when somebody's diagnosed with diabetes or they're having a diabetic situation, it's a very acute situation. And the focus in the healthcare system is to get them stabilized. And then maybe the dietitian isn't in the building at that exact moment, or maybe they leave the building before they're able to get all of this education. And so there's kind of that missed opportunity. But um, with this task, it's the first time that they're really understanding that a carbohydrate is a complex sugar, and then this impacts their diabetes and that they have a choice in what they eat, and they can look through all of their favorite foods and figure out which ones are the best for them. So that's just another example of being able to be given information and make decisions that are personally relevant and meaningful to them. Yeah, I think that's a great example. While you were describing that, another one that came to mind was um, education about reflux or GERD, Mm -hmm. gastroesophageal reflux or LPR, laryngopharyngeal reflux. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's that common information out there about, oh, you need to cut out tomatoes and acidic foods and things like that. 
Mm-hmm. And then I got a hold of some information that then I adapted for some patient handouts that explained why, what about those foods led to that recommendation? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that tomatoes, for example, cause reflux. It was that they irritate the esophageal lining. And if mm-hmm. you're experiencing reflux, then your esophageal lining is already compromised. It's needs to heal. But if you continue eating high levels of you know, citric and tomato foods, then you're not allowing your esophagus time to heal right. if, it's, if the reflux is being managed by medications effectively. So huh. that's what I share with people. I'm like, these are the reasons why they're recommending no coffee. It's not the caffeine in it. It's this other complex um, chemical name that relaxes the lower esophageal sphincter. So I was like, if you are a diehard coffee person or chocolate, because it's the same chemical that's in chocolate and in coffee, then I was like, please choose or, you know, make your own decisions. It might not be the best idea to drink coffee or eat chocolate after lunchtime, because then you're more likely to be in a reclining position. Mm -hmm. And if your lower esophageal sphincter is already relaxed from the food that you've eaten, then that's just going to cause more reflux. So if you're going to eat chocolate, eat it for breakfast, friend. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's that explaining the why behind Mm -hmm. it and then just letting it sit and letting it be and letting their reality just gel with whatever they want it to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not saying swear off chocolate and coffee for the rest of your life. It's like, understand what the consequences might be before you engage in that decision. And if you know that and you're okay with the consequences, that's you. That's all you. That's cool. Mm-hmm. So in New Zealand, do they have, do they, well, well, maybe we'll get to this, but this is more like a critical level of health literacy, but are they making policy choices based on people's health care decisions? Kind of like in the United States, we're starting to see different health insurance plans based on tobacco use or no tobacco use. Do you know Mm -hmm. if that's something that they're doing? Well, I feel like a large, um, and this was like 15 years ago, you know, 2007. Mm -hmm. If I can do my math right now, I'm really scared. I didn't do my math right. No, wait, was it? No. Oh God, I'm going to be so confused if I don't get a calculator and fix that. Okay. (laughs) So the main thing was about access to healthcare and how that there is, there was, and most likely still is, um, unequal access to healthcare Hmm. um, based on multitude of factors, obviously socioeconomic standards or access to that as well and um, cultural influences and other things of that nature. And so that was um, kind of it. Okay. That's what I remember. That's what stood out to me because I found that really interesting and really powerful. Hmm. So I don't know if that answered your question or not. (laughs) Well, Um, I mean, so, okay. So that's functional health literacy. And then if we move on to the next level, That is interactive health literacy. And that is where like we give the information and then there's some sort of interactive element to it. So maybe we describe why somebody is having 
memory problems after a brain injury. And then we also say this is a brain injury support group that meets on Tuesdays for breakfast and then kind of helping them figure out a way to get there. So that's just taking the knowledge and and putting it up to the next level by allowing people to have opportunities to interact with this information and learn and decide things on their own. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. And then the the third level of health literacy that we're going to talk about is what this article refers to as critical health literacy. And this is probably the type that I'm the most excited about and why I was asking you that question about policy. Um, and this is the level where we're starting to integrate all of this information about the human experience and maybe make policy decisions around it um, or create a healthcare system that's going to uh, better help people make decisions. So the other part of this that I think is super exciting is this concept of the learning health system. And it's kind of a difficult concept to talk about because it's not really anything tangible. It's not like an institution or a lab or a central organization but it's more this concept that we have the potential to tap into the expanse of the human experience. And like as of up till now, we've been relying on data points that are generally produced uh, by researchers in very controlled studies. Um, but if we think about this in the sense of like life before the internet and life after the internet, like I'm of an age where I remember both of those and they're completely different worlds. And I think that's what the health literacy uh, or the learning health system is going to do for healthcare. So if we can think about it as like it's the energy inside all of us and it's the potential to capture data from real people going through real situations and taking all of that messy data and all those messy storylines and finding patterns in them. And I think this is especially attractive to me and I think to a lot of speech therapists because we are such a young field and we have such a limited amount of evidence for anything right now that it's really hard mm -hmm. to know what's working and what's not working and you could take any intervention in our field and find evidence to support it and evidence that maybe it doesn't work as much as we thought it does. Or So the idea that we could take, like, for example, um, neuromuscular electrical stimulation for swallowing, um, you could find evidence in the literature both ways, right? Yes. But what if we then tried to document and tried to capture data points from all over the world of actual people going through the experience and maybe some, some of them had an MES as an intervention and some of them didn't. And we could start to get a better picture of reality based on all of these data points. And I think when we talk Megan, about it too. <laughs> are you crowdsourcing research right now? Is that what's happening? That's what it could be. <laughs> like if you imagine what Kickstarter did for small businesses, that's what we could do for research. So think about like if we had a Kickstarter for research and somebody put up a project that said, we want to know more about NMES. 
And I, as a clinician, could donate $10 to that cause. And that $10 would go towards the effort of building, you know, the the web page that allowed clinicians to upload data and paid the cl- the clinical researcher to structure those questions and to structure that data collection in a way that's meaningful. And then over a period of five or 10 years, if you have enough people submitting to that website um, within that structured setting, then you, you're going to start to tease apart what's actually going on in the real world. So I think it's really exciting. Yeah, because I, I wonder, like, it kind of makes me think that you're pulling in a lot more of what people call anecdotal evidence, like mm-hmm. things that they've experienced in the clinic or in their treatment courses with patients. And because that's a lot of the back and forth that I'll see on Facebook groups, too, is, right. you know, somebody will say, oh, you know, new research article is published and it's telling us we should not be doing X, Y, Z. And then somebody may may or may not pipe up and say, <laughs> well, I've been doing X, Y, Z for X amount of time and yeah. <laughs> I've had really good results. <laughs> right. And then these conversations don't really get us anywhere. I think they just create a lot of scarcity, a lot of division, a lot of frustration. And it's. I think it is frustrating because we are trained to think that we have the answers, or at least that, that's how I was trained. And then mm-hmm. to realize that we don't, it's a scary place. And and like I loved what Megan Sutton said about um, like the knowledge that we have is like a recipe and like you eventually become a chef and you incorporate lots of different flavors into what you're doing. And I think that that perspective is so much more enriching than is it right, is it wrong? is this person doing it the way that we all think it should be done? Like, like the human body, the human experience is so vastly different (laughs) from one person to the next. And I don't think we ever will have all the answers. And that's the exciting part. And I think if we shift from this scarcity to abundance, we can see that we have an abundance of curiosity, an abundance of collaboration, an abundance of opportunity an abundance of growing knowledge, like there is no right or wrong way. And that's really exciting. That is exciting. You have a really good way with words, Megan. (laughs) (laughs) I could just sit here and listen to you and nod my head all day. All day. I'm down with that. I feel like you need to be on TED. I feel like you just have the perfect cadence for TED talking. (laughs) Did you pick up any phrases in New Zealand? Like I got, like I got people super confused when I kept using the phrase, like she'll be right, and they're like, "Who's she? Like she'll, who? Who are you talking about?" Well, it's like they have this way of ending phrases in the word "as," "as," uh-huh. like "good at." Oh yeah, and I'm like, "Good, good as what?" <laughs> like, can you finish that statement for me, please. I just kept waiting for people to finish talking, and I'm like, "You haven't finished a sentence. Why? You're repeating entire thought patterns now. I don't understand." But I love New Zealand, so please don't come after me. I love you guys. <laughs> that was actually part of my Rotary talk too. Was how I had such a hard time understanding people when they were talking to me, and I was like, "I thought we both." spoke English, but um, <laughs> turns out we don't, and I needed a crash course. 
and Kiwi Ease. <laughs> Funny. Oh, so I spent a good hour in a lecture before I figured out what type of cancer they were talking about. Oh. Because they pronounce a certain word so different from what I was expecting. Uh huh. I was really lost in that lecture for an hour until I finally saw it written. And I was like, oh, is that what they're talking about? <laughs> so they kept saying um, cervical cancer, cervical cancer, oh. cervical cancer. Are they mispronouncing survival cancer? And what is that? <laughs> and finally, cervical, cervical cancer. And I was like, oh, dear, this That's is going to be a rough year, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we had this big meeting in Tallahassee with a group of scientists. And there was a group that came in from New Zealand. And somebody got it in their head that they wanted to go to the pawn shop. And I think it was slight, you know, there was a little bit of like this weirdness of Americana that you can just go into a store and look at guns and other weird things. So they kept talking about Mm -hmm. the pawn shop. And then we get there and all the New Zealanders are like, oh my God, like that is not what we thought you were talking about. (laughs) And they were expecting walking into a building full of filthy magazines and... (laughs) Oh, oh, no. oh, yeah. On shop. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, Megan, another crazy fact. You said Tallahassee? Uh-huh. That's where I was born and raised. What? That's a great place. I know. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. Yay, Tallahassee. Capital of Florida. <laughs> Delightful place to live and then move from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, I like how our lives keep paralleling. That's very fun for me. Um, all right, so are are we good with learning health systems? Do you feel like you have covered that? Yeah, yeah. The only thing I would okay. say is that it's just a it's a very like intangible concept, and I think it's just going to start with little pockets here and there. And it's going to grow and it's going to change things in ways that we can't even imagine right now. So, yeah. I really appreciate how comfortable you are with intangible concepts because they really bother me. Like I, <laughs> I remember in grad school, my professor in my language class saying, um, you know, treating language. And I, I think this was a pediatric class uh, for language. Treating language is like nailing jello to a tree. <laughs> and I was like, what? That sounds awful. Why would you fool the whole semester this way? Oh my goodness. And he was not wrong. He was not wrong. So um, I really appreciate concrete things. And I think that's why I'm like, why some of my favorite aspects of the medical field are voice and swallowing because Uh they have imaging that goes along with the assessment and Mm -hmm. treatment. Mm-hmm. options and so they're so they they can be so much more concrete concrete than yeah. other things that we work on like cognition oh, oh. oh. <laughs> yeah I'm still trying to figure that one out so which topic shall we tackle next hmm. let's see are we are we talking about slp diversity core now do we dare? Yes, let's jump in. Let's go there. <laughs> um, 
so I think like you came across this concept on Facebook when somebody had posted a blog article that she had written about her experience as an underrepresented person entering the field of speech pathology. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So I had a few experiences that led me to start the SLP Diversity Corps, which I will say I started that in May of 2018, I think. And the feedback I got on it was pretty mixed. And so I haven't done a whole lot with it just because I don't know if we're ready to tackle this yet. Um, But like I said, I, I had this different career before I became a speech pathologist. And I remember going into the information session that they had at the university just to like get a feel for what this was all about. And I remember walking into the room and I just had this feeling that I was in the wrong place. And there was, there was just not a lot of diversity there. And I think because I had come from working with so many different types of people from all walks of life, that it was just an odd experience for me. And then I was in at the ASHA conference in Denver in 2015, and I went to the the keynote. I was there too. Secret. Oh, see, I bet we were like <laughs> sitting right next to each other, and we didn't even know it. <laughs> this is too fun. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> so I went. I didn't go with anybody I knew. So I was just sitting there by myself, and a couple of uh, the board of directors from ASHA got up, and they were kind of doing this big rally about diversity and how diverse ASHA was. And I, again, I just had this feeling of like, am I in the right place? Like, am I missing something? Like, what is happening here? Like, this is not a diverse room. And it's okay that it's not a diverse room. I just, it's like this weird juxtaposition that's happening where we're talking that it's diverse, but it's not. And that was really confusing to me. And so these things sort of led me to think about diversity and what it means. And for me personally, and I can only speak about my own personal perspective, but what I've learned is that when we have a diverse set of backgrounds and experiences and perspectives, we generally are better able to solve complex problems just by the sheer simple fact that we have lots of different perspectives that are contributing to the possible pool of solutions. And Mm -hmm. so I started SLP Diversity Corps with the idea that you could become a member and membership is totally free, but membership comes with a responsibility. And that responsibility is giving a five to 10 minute talk once per year to an introductory college class or like a high school class. And the idea behind that is just to spread awareness that speech pathology actually exists. Because I didn't know about it till I was well into my 20s. And I think that a lot of people just don't know about it. And then if they do get into it, um, you know, maybe they're experiencing that they just don't fit into that world or what's typically expected to be the type of person that fits into that world. And so they don't pursue it. So I think if we can mm-hmm. just broaden the number of people that even know about it, we can then inadvertently increase the diversity with the point being that we need people to solve big problems. Like I said, we're a really young field. We have a lot of questions that need to be 
answered and we need lots of different people to try to answer those questions. Um, yeah. Oh, do continue. <laughs> <laughs> but when I, so when I posted this, um, I got a mixed reaction and I would say that there was a very public reaction and then a private reaction. And so I got a lot of emails from people who are, you know, underrepresented in our field, thanking me for creating the site and having the conversation. And they felt like they were not able to say anything. But then I got a very public reaction, um, mostly on social media, that basically communicated that we maybe didn't need diversity just for diversity's sake and kind of questioning, like, what? why are we even having this conversation? So that's kind of why I've left it alone. But <laughs> I'm curious to see if people are still interested in building the SLP Diversity Corps and having it grow and really getting out there and doing these presentations and inviting lots of different people to be a part of speech pathology. Yeah, I, I definitely think we need more perspectives, a broader experience base to draw off of that will direct future research, will direct um, how we learn and how we can provide efficient treatment to the variety of patients that and clients that we treat. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you, it, can I like put the cat out of the bag? Can I like <laughs> yeah, an example of the surprising feedback that you got? Yeah. So it was about um, encouraging more men to become SLPs. Yes. And that was some of the backlash was like, why do we need to share this field with them? Right. Um, <laughs> it's like the one thing we have, like, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, what's ironic is that I can see both sides of that perspective. Right. <laughs> like, it's like something precious, like, let's make it ours. Let's make it powerful. But at the right. same time, I mean, hello, I don't just treat women. Like I treat men too. Right. And and um, you use that word powerful. And I think that is such an interesting concept in itself. So when we think about power, I think a lot of people think that power is finite. And like, if I have power, then this, this other person cannot have power. Or if I give my power away, then I lose power. Whereas I think the reality is that when we see power as infinite, we are able to drop these barriers and drop these arbitrary lines that we're drawing and realize that it's just like the more people that are empowered, the more powerful we will all be. <laughs> and maybe that's a little woo woo, but like, I just, I don't think that coveting power and keeping it to ourselves is going to take us down a really great road. No, I think you're absolutely on point. There was, um, a very fantastic, insightful man who said a threat to justice anywhere is, wait, oh gosh, I'm going <laughs> to mess it up. Dead gummit. I just I don't have the smoothness at all. A threat to justice anywhere. Wait, it's a threat to justice everywhere. I think yeah. I was on the right track. I just yeah. lost my mojo. So yeah, that was the Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. So yeah, pretty smart man. <laughs> Very insightful. Yeah, and, and not somebody true. who was saying this group needs power, and now this other group needs to have less power. Like that was not his message at all. 
and is that it affects everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I took that. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. Oh, you know what? It's that feeling of, I like how you were talking about power. It's that also that feeling of, of somehow being threatened. Mm-hmm. And so I do a lot of work to recognize when I'm feeling threatened mm-hmm. and why, mm-hmm. and then to realize that maybe there is no foundation for that fear is that right. it's unfounded fear that's making me feel threatened. And right. that I don't need that in my life. I've got other things that yep. are. And then know, like, if we all go. kind of experience like what does it feel like or how do we react when we feel threatened like we're defensive we're territorial mm-hmm. we're coveting that power like it, there's nothing good that comes from that feeling but if we're able to drop that thought then we're all just people <laughs> with lots of different things to offer so yeah with valid perspectives valid mm-hmm. points of view yeah. valid thoughts you know, mm-hmm. and when you share them, they should, they should be accepted as what they are. They're your thoughts, they're your perspectives and they're valid. They're not any more important or less important or yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I feel like we could just go on and on and on <laughs> and on and on and on. We could get real navel gazing, but um, <laughs> you know, I like to get concrete and get actionable. <laughs> We're going to circle this wagon back around. (laughs) Um, The last kind of bullet point you had was talking about problem solving. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you want to dive into that at all? Or because we're nearing our wrap up time, but we got about five minutes. So it's up to you, Megan. Yeah. I mean, when we think about problem solving in our community of speech pathology, I think that health literacy and diversity feed directly into that. And so I think the more that we can embrace new ways of solving problems, embrace different communities of people that can help us solve those problems, the more that we can collaborate, the more that we can interact, the more that we can get creative about collecting stories, collecting data, and um, seeing reality in the midst of all of that. Like, there is such an exciting amount of adventure and journey ahead of all of us in this field. So I just think it's really exciting. I do too. I do too. Um, And it's not going to be an easy path. Like change and growth is challenging and doesn't always bring out the best in people. And I can speak personally. It does not bring out the best in me (laughs) at all. I've had very, um, direct experiences that with that these last couple months and Mm -hmm. I've been learning a lot and not liking everything I've been learning about myself but hey there we are (laughs) but what a great what a great place to be and that's what I love about your podcast is that you're just you're asking the questions you're being open and you're learning new things and I think that inspires me to stop and say like oh well what don't I know and what could I learn and that's just such a great energy to have so thank you Good. Thanks. Yeah. I'm really passionate about learning and recognizing my own faults and limitations, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I want to empower other people to um, know that they can do the same. I'm not saying you need to get your faults. That's just something I'm obsessive with. Like, I don't need (laughs) to put that on anybody else. (laughs) 
but uh, yeah, just yeah, that like, idea of like it's okay not to know, or it's like it's not only okay to be curious, but like that's what we need is curiosity and to let go of the need to know everything all the time because we don't and if you have a question and you go out there searching for the answer and you find that there is not an answer to that question you might be the person who has to make that answer right who has to create a research problem who has to you know find out a way to get the answer and put it out there for everybody else yeah how exciting right woohoo who's all like jacked up on Mountain Dew now right (laughs) (laughs) Let's get excited and get out there and change the world. (laughs) I really should like filter my thoughts sometimes. No, don't. Never do that. (laughs) All right, Megan, this has been an absolute blast. I can't wait to chat with you more in the future and find out other ways and other times that our lives have crossed. (laughs) Yes, for sure. I'm sure they are there. Right. Just gonna have to sit down and talk it out and figure it all out. Yeah. All right, Megan. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for the work that you do in providing these visually appealing and um super helpful health literacy forms. I mean, that's basically I feel like that's what therapy insights is, is it's kind of focused on health literacy, like equipping us to equip, you know, the people that we come in contact with in the therapy world and rehab yeah. world to start taking ownership over the information and the choices that they make yeah, for their health. You nailed it. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you, Megan. Megan provided excellent links to read the article we discussed in the show notes on speechuncensored.com. And she's so modest, she didn't even send the link for her thriving business, Therapy Insights. So I added that one too, so that if you wanted to, you could click through and explore the site and see what she's up to if you're not already a subscriber. And um, okay, just a little side note. I finally did the math with a calculator, and it's been 12 years since Meg and I attended the University of Otago, not 15. (laughs) And thank goodness, because 15 years just sounds like a really long time. So yeah. Anyway, moving on. Next week's guest is Kelly Zarifa, who will be joining me to talk about PRN life in the skilled nursing environment. A little while ago, I had a listener reach out and ask to expand upon episode seven from season one. That was with Jen Hurst, where we talked about working solely as a PRN SLP. And so Kelly's episode will be focused on um, living that PR in life, but on the sniff setting, what that's like, how to be prepared and have materials uh, when you go to work at a place that doesn't really necessarily have materials and other fun facts that Kelly's going to be sharing with us. So there you have it. Listener requested, Leanne delivered. That's how we roll. All right, well, let's put this baby to bed and wrap it up. Here are my parting thoughts. I am so delighted that you've joined me today, and I hope that you found today's episode informative and entertaining. I'd be highly honored if you would leave a review on iTunes and tell me what's working for the podcast. In the meantime, keep nourishing your brain with all the amazing resources out there for us med SLPs and keep flourishing. You're awesome, and I'll see you next week.